This is Bonjour Chai, the Rabbi's Love Cheshvan Edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we will be talking with Dr. Esther Altman about rabbinic burnout, what it is, how is it different from professional burnout, and what can be done to help. But first, Alana, we have an announcement to make. We do. We are very excited to announce that we have picked a new host, and you will get to meet them next week on the show. Uh, but first, Alana, what's been on your mind? Well, something that came up in the news yesterday that honestly really bothered me was the story about uh, Sally Rooney's new book. Did you read about that? I haven't read the new book, but I read about a little bit I haven't about read what's the going book. on. Yeah. And I will not read the book now because honestly, it, it this whole situation makes me extremely uncomfortable. So essentially, um, Sally Rooney wrote uh, her first book, is Normal second, People. That was her which second novel, seen... actually. She had, she had a oh. novel before that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Actually, I have, I have heard of that. So anyway, so Normal People was the one that brought her the most acclaim. It was turned into a, a very beautiful show. And I watched the show first and then read the book and noticed many anti-Zionist little touches in the book where they kind of made it seem like the mom was an activist and she fought against Zionism. So therefore, she was like a good person was kind of the subtext. And I was like, I don't know if I want to keep reading this book. Like, it was just making me feel uncomfortable. Um, And so then this new book uh, that just came out called Beautiful World, Where Are You? It was translated into 46 languages, but not into Hebrew. And she released a statement about it um, where she talks about... She, she recognizes that there are many other places in the world that are guilty of human rights abuses, but she's responding directly to a call from the Palestinian community. And she uh, talks about BDS. And in, in some articles that I read about it, she was talking about, uh, or maybe the other people were talking about how it, in her mind, it's like, this is an anti-racist group. Um, I don't fully agree with that. I think that BDS is extremely anti-Semitic and I think there's a lot of problems with it. Um, and this is coming from someone who who does think that Palestinians should have a voice, but I don't know that this is the way to do it because now any Jew who is a supporter of Israel, as I mentioned in my article about the Koffler Center that I released a number of months ago, um, you know, is not going to feel comfortable reading this book. So she, it, the conflation between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism to me is so strong that to me it feels just like anti-Semitism. Though I did find out afterwards, and and that changed my view a little bit, that she is open to having it published in Hebrew as long as it's from a publisher that's not Israeli, but it's like, what is, uh, where are you going to find such a person? <laughs> Avi, what are your thoughts on this? Um, so, I mean, I saw that statement about that she's not against, you know, Hebrew or Israel. Or she just No, she is against Israel. Is. No, 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 in that way in that she's, she just wants to find... Um, a publisher that is, you know, fits in with her model of what BDS or whatever it is should stand for, that fits into her understanding of what would be an acceptable publisher. And I'm, I, I don't think that she would have a hard time finding a publisher that would, you know, fit into that model. So that's first of all. Um, and, you know, there might be, there's, there's a market right there. All of a sudden you can put yourself out there and say, great, I'm going to sell this huge novel and I'm going to be the only one that's going to have the right to sell this. So maybe she will find somebody. So I'm not so sure that she'll never find somebody to, to find a published, you know, for that. So I never, I haven't read any Sally Rooney books yet. I haven't even watched the TV series. Um, I've it's been really told good. that she's good. I'm not, I'm, the, the, I'm, the I'm TV coming at really this. <laughs> so I'm coming at this from a point outside of that yeah. piece right now. 
if she has a certain set of politics and she doesn't want her book to be aligned with a certain set of politics, then that's her prerogative. No, it is, but I'm not going to read it now. And that's fine. And she knows that she's, she might lose some people as a result of that, you included. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the same way that Roger Waters is going to lose some people based on, you know, whatever he says that we should be pro BDS and he's not going to play in Israel. So he's losing some, you know, Israeli or, uh, you know, non-Israeli, but Zionist supporters in the diaspora or in the rest of the world. And that's his choice. And that's fine. And I think that actors and uh, artists and musicians and, you know, everybody makes these choices about their personal politics. And I don't think it's abhorrent for somebody to go and say, my art actually is attached to this. I, I think it's more abhorrent when people go and say, yeah, R. Kelly is a convicted felon, but I'm still going to listen to his music because it's cool. Right. Right. You know, so that's a problem. And we have many instances in the Jewish community where, not many, but there are definitely instances in the Jewish community where you have less than savory individuals um, who do, you know, all sorts of stuff. And yet we tend to disregard those things. So sometimes we disregard the, you know, the politics from because we like the art. And sometimes we're willing to, like, go and push the, and push the entire art aside just to get to that piece. I'm like, eh, whatever. I, I don't know. If I, I don't know. I, I like... I don't feel like why why don't we why do we still listen to the music of Shlomo Karlbach, right? When or or sing his songs when he is really like according to many many accounts a very bad person, and yet because he's become so you know universally like part of the Jewish community and and, and his songs are just there, then we say well we'll disregard that. You can choose to disregard that. Other people can choose not to. But I think that this person has every right, and I think that it's noble almost. I'm, no, they have every so right. What's the problem? I agree. With- no, I agree with you that they have every right. I think I think it's just more the phenomena that bothers me more than the specific act. Because to me, this is very different than Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's is an ice cream company. There's, It should not be politicized. This is a form of art which has more right to have an opinion and to have a stance. Mm-hmm. So I'm all for that. But I think for me, as an artist and as a person and as a Jew and as a progressive Zionist or whatever you want to call me, I worry about just the message that these types of stances take on for our community because yesterday I went for a walk on Queen Street and I walked into this really cool indie bookshop and I was really excited and it looked like the type of place that I would love and then right when I walked in there was a giant display for this new book and I literally started feeling so nauseous because to me it's like and like maybe I'm very sensitive to this these days but it just felt like it was like Oh, right, because that's like the woke thing to be is to be an anti-Zionist. And like, maybe they just like Sally Rooney. But the way that I felt when I walked in was kind of like unsafe. And this is just my own personal feeling. And I can tell on your face How that you really How many people are aware of this thing happening right now? It's all over the news. But maybe people aren't paying attention. Yeah, I don't know. I... I was barely on my radar because I'm not, I don't know. I mean, yeah. how would you feel, flip it around. This is just my How would feelings. you feel if, um, yeah. you know, what was that movie, uh, that TV series on Netflix uh, with Leo Raz, Hidden Run, had nothing to do with Israel. It was, Leo Raz is the, okay. he's the actor, the main actor from Fauda, um, right? Okay, and yeah, so yeah. he starred in a Netflix film that starred in Israeli, but like it's basically taking place in, in North America. Um, how would you feel if, um, a large group, a large Palestinian group, came out and said, "We we will no longer um, be watching Netflix because they support Leo Raz and therefore they support the occupation." How would that make you feel? Well, okay, there's two there's two sides of this for me. Number one, I think if it's coming from a Palestinian. I have a lot more empathy because they're the people that are actually being affected, not some random Irish 
author. author who has an opinion about, about what's going on in the Middle East. That's the first thing. The second thing is like, I don't know, it's, it's not that different to me in some ways because it still is like the phenomena and the phenomena of um, just assuming that all Israelis have the exact same political stance, number one. And I think that's the thing that really bothered me. It was like, oh, you won't get it published in Hebrew by like an organization unless they're very, very pro-BDS. Like there might be some people who are very empathetic to the Palestinian cause in the way that I am, but also support Jews' existence in the land of Israel. And there's no room for the nuance. And that's the part that really bothers me. Yeah, but this this has nothing to do with Sally Rooney. This is, this is much more on the individual who says, I'm no longer going to be into this artist sure. because of and that. That's, that's fine. And I think that that's... That's an individual choice. And who am I to say that they have to change their mind? Like, this is just my own personal reaction. I'm not saying that yeah. everyone needs to feel the same way that I do. I, I don't see the... I don't see the... Like, again, I, I really don't see the need to, like, get all worked up over various artists. You, you can choose to not be into them. I think what happens is when people get worked up about this, and I'm not saying this is the case with you, um, but you often see this with other cases where somebody goes and says, oh my God, I love Roger Waters. I just, I feel bad because I can't listen to him anymore because he's such a bad person because he's so anti-Israel. Right. And I'm like, you're clearly right. right. You don't really believe this, but you believe this, but I'm like, you're you're conflicted. That's where, like, I have a weirdness. Like, make make it huh. so that it's so turned... You're you're so turned off by this, then turn around from the turn away from this music and and not be into it right. anymore, right? Most yeah. right thinking people are so turned off, for example, by R. Kelly because hmm. they listen to his music now and they read into it like right thinking people. I would say left thinking no, I mean, people. Not wrong, right? As in <laughs> oh, I thought you meant right wing. No, no, I was no. like really most correct thinking okay. individuals listen to like don't listen to R. Kelly anymore because they listen to these lyrics and they say that's disgusting. He is clearly singing about something which is super inappropriate and wrong and illegal and harmful and bad. I'm not interested in that music anymore, right? And and the people yeah. that are getting worked up are saying to themselves, well, now you took away something that I really like and they feel bad and, and it hurts them that something that they like is, you know, the person who made it is now associated with a politics that they don't like. And to them, they're basically right. saying, well, anything that I like has to have the politics that I like. And then that's weird. Well, th like, not necessarily. <laughs> I'm not saying can I'm not saying cancel Sally Rooney. Like I think that it's important not to be in an echo chamber, and it's important to have different perspectives. It simply reiterates this discomfort that I've just been feeling a lot this year mm -hmm. around, you know, l like extreme leftism and being anti-Israel. That's that's it. all. I mean, if anything, one can say that her campaign actually worked really, really well because she has brought attention by the by this very act to not True. do anything. Right? It's not like she said this thing and then nothing happened. Nobody cared. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. okay, great. Israelis don't like Sally Rooney, anyways. We don't like Irish teen dramas or adult. What is it? it's an epistolary novel? It's a bunch of emails. That's what I was uh, reading about the, the, this uh, novel. I don't even know. Honestly, after okay. I saw the press, I didn't even care. I didn't even open anyways. the book. So, okay. Sally Rooney, we'll, uh, we won't check you out, or we will. Maybe I will. I mean, it's, she seems like an interesting author, and she's been Go on my, my radar for a long time. I have, I have to say that the, I found the show better than the book when, for normal people. Interesting. Um, which I'll, I have other friends that had read the book first, and they thought that the show was equally good. So, like, I don't know. It's written in a weird way. The punctuation is weird. It's kind of a stylized thing. It didn't really speak to me as much. Okay. Anyway, well, enjoy if you do, and uh, enjoy if you don't. <laughs>
before we get on to our next topic, let us talk about our sponsor. So uh, feeding off what you, what you showed me last week, I have something of my own that I'm wearing right now on my wrist from Atelier Lou. Do you want to describe it this time? Um, so this looks like, uh, because I do know a lot of what he has, uh, this is a uniform wears watch. You are correct. Um, wow. And uniform wears, uh, they're, uh, they're a European, um, wonderful, uh, watch company, relatively, um, well-priced, meaning, you know, they're not in the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, but they have some really cool design features in that, yeah. like the, the face is beautifully designed, very flat, very neutral. It's very um, neutral and there's no, um, product labeling on it at all like you can't see that it's uniform wears it just looks like a standard watch which is something that i really like like i don't need to have like a giant label advertising uh, a watch brand on my wrist they also have this really beautiful metal strap which is uh which has uh like a really nice look a nice feel to it uh it's unique to them and uh yeah we should check out uniform wears. where can one buy a uniform wears watch uh so for our listeners we have a promo for you. You can go on atelierlu.com and use BON18 at checkout and get 10% off your order. Or you can go in person. Atelier Lou is based in Montreal. They are. You can go check them out. Pick out a uniform wears watch or anything else and uh, um, support, the, uh, support the sponsors. It is the month of Cheshvan, and that means that there are no Jewish holidays coming up. This is good news for rabbis who are often left feeling a bit spent after the whole high holiday Sukkot season. The past few years, especially since the beginning of the pandemic, we have been hearing about burnout amongst our clergy, and we are joined by Dr. Esther Altman to talk about this. Dr. Altman is a psychologist in private practice, as well as the Director of Pastoral Education at Yeshivat Maharat in New York City, where she joins us from. Welcome, Esther, to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. You're also a Canadian, of course. Oh. I'm not only a Canadian, but I'm a Montrealer, so I'm particularly pleased to be doing this podcast. Yes. Excellent. Um, Love it. Thanks. So um, what can you tell us about um, how the the climate is different now in terms of the discussions around rabbinic burnout versus previously when it was um, much quieter and things were happening, but rabbis felt like, you know, there was no forum to discuss these types of things? Well, one of the things I think we need to appreciate is what the past two years have been like. And we may feel a little bit tired talking about the pandemic, Um, And it's kind of old news, but we are still in it. And if we take a step back and think about the last 20 months, let's just appreciate for a moment everything that rabbis have had to do. And I think we need to be talking about rabbinic burnout within that context. Rabbis' jobs are always difficult. But in the last 20 months, it's been absolutely exponential in terms of what they've encountered and what they've had to do and how they've had to step up. So let's take a moment to think about it. Everything shut down. And just as everything was shutting down, there was an an unusual number of losses and deaths and trauma in the community. And their normal, our normal rituals, our forms of worship, our uh, ways of gathering as a community and supporting each other all shut down. And they had to think of new and creative ways to meet all of these demands. And at the very same time that that was happening, they were in their own vulnerabilities. In other words, usually when a trauma hits a family or community, the rabbi, him or herself, 
is not also experiencing that trauma at the very same time. But with the pandemic, the rabbi also had to worry about getting sick. The rabbi right. had to worry about their family's health and well-being. Maybe the rabbi had an unexpected loss of a loved one because of the coronavirus. And the rabbi had to worry about their own health and the possibility that they would, they would get ill and, and not knowing, you know, we didn't know how um, any one of us was going to manage the illness. Um, and the rabbi's children were home. Um, if the rabbi has children, right, help and all kinds of support systems and providers that we all lost, rabbis lost too. So as their demands were becoming overwhelming, they also were feeling their own personal vulnerabilities. And it's that interaction, that intersection, which I think has um, contributed greatly to um, rabbis' feelings of burnout right now. Yeah. And, and the demands really haven't haven't um, lessened because every single time, you know, we think we're kind of out of it or sort of out of it, or they make a plan. I think the Chagim that we've just passed would be a perfect example. Many communities, many congregations had plan A, and the next thing they knew that all the work that went into plan A was no longer going to be viable. They had to go to plan B and sometimes to plan C. So it mm -hmm. kept changing, it kept evolving. And I, I think that that is all part of this conversation. So are you saying that it's the uncertainty and that unknown that rabbis are now facing that is the highest contributor of the added stress? Um, do you think there's an element of the, I, I want to talk a bit about technology in relation to burnout, because there's lots of talk in our age about, uh, you know, people being on their phone too much or Zoom fatigue. And, you know, depending on what denomination you're from, maybe you're doing your services online. Do you feel like you've noticed with people you've worked with who are rabbis or clergy members that the technology has altered that or increased the stress? Or is it more about, you know, losing a loved one, fear of getting the virus uh, yourself? Look, I think the technology is, is a blessing and a curse. I think we've all experienced that and, and rabbis as well. So in some ways, the technology has helped rabbis teach classes on Zoom, stay connected, see people when we really weren't able to see people. Now, of course, it's a little bit better. So in that way, I think the technology has really helped rabbis um, feel like they can do their job. The right. other side of that coin, right, is that sometimes the technology feels a little invasive, right? So you're teaching a class and you're not, you know, in your shoulder synagogue and your, you know, two-year-old has a meltdown. And even though your door is closed, you know, your congregation can hear it. Now, again, you know, that may be very stressful because you want to maintain a certain level of composure and boundaries between your private life and your communal life on the one hand. On the other hand, rabbis, you know, are human and, you um, you know, people get to see that that they're regular folks, and that's not such a bad thing either sometimes. Um, so that's one part of the technology. I think the other part of the technology is that a lot of the technology is new, right? And so some rabbis, you know, are very adept at technology and loved it and didn't mind um, being on Zoom or finding new ways to teach and perform. But for other rabbis, they like that in-person, one-on-one, or being in body. And so the Zoom works better for some and not as well for others. And that, you know, that's a very individual difference. And uh, I think that's also something that we just need to be mindful about. Right. Um, Avi, I'm curious what it was like for you. I, don't, I know you, you don't, uh, you're not a pulpit rabbi, but 
were, were there any experiences that you had throughout this past year with the pandemic that you found added stress with the, the virus and all of the things we just talked about? Look, I'm, I'm in a unique position, right? Because I'm a clergy member. I have been in the pulpit, so I sort of know what it feels like. I've been the head of the board of rabbis. I, I've been around or the executive director in Montreal. Um, but my wife is a clergy member. My wife is the current president of the board of rabbis in Montreal. And when the pandemic, you know, started, it was, you know, all of a sudden full on, you know, overdrive for her, even though she was stuck at home. Um, But there was, you know, so much work to be done in terms of coordinating between the rabbis of Montreal, getting a unique message across, uh, speaking to doctors um, that are going to be working with the city uh, from from the, you know, at the city level, what's going on at the provincial level, um, and the regular communal, you know, responsibilities of being a clergy member in a large synagogue. So all of that was on her and the kids were at home. So I just went full on into to like family mode. I was like, I don't have a pulpit right now. I do, I can put a pause on all my programming. Um, nobody's coming to it anyways. Let me just put that on the side. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to support um, what she was doing. I mean, if I feel any burnout, it's more as a parent at this point than anything else. And that's a whole different discussion, but we're all feeling burnout. So I'm not going to go and say that I'm unique or I'm different. Um, but that actually leads to you know, something else that's very related to what I just said, um, but I'm very curious about. Um, I had a colleague of mine recently because this this talk, this this ideas are, are, are around and a colleague of mine was, was saying something about how, uh, you know, rabbis have a hard time talking about this burnout simply because um, well, A, it changes the dynamic within their, um, you know, within their congregation. You know, you don't want to be the rabbi who's dealing with some sort of mental stress um, and that that's difficult because people aren't going to want to come to you and that's they're supposed to be here to come to you. Um, but the bigger issue was that, you know, this colleague went and said, well, we can't talk about rabbinic burnout because nobody's talking about executive director burnout. Nobody's talking about bookkeeper burnout. Nobody's talking about other Jewish Federation professionals burnout um, or school teacher. I mean, school teacher, maybe. But the idea is, is like, well, all of this focus and all the wonderful things are about the rabbi. And let's make sure that the rabbis are taken care of. But there's so much other support staff that is dealing with all of this. And if we focus on rabbi burnout, then we focus, then we don't, we take the focus away from all the other people that are dealing with a lot of burnout. Now that leads to this other idea that even then, rabbis are needing to have this face, this brave face and being the professional and being the one that's always there and aren't able to go and take that time for themselves. And that, to me, is a unique feature of this idea of rabbinic burnout is that it's burnout. Everybody wants to talk about it, but nobody's supposed to show it because that is the nature of you know mm, being really the rabbi in a community. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, Esther. Oh, I, I think I think that's a great point, right? So rabbis don't feel permission because they're so aware that they're supposed to be caretaking and sensitive to everybody else's needs that they can't even yeah. say that they too have needs, right? There's, so that yeah. again, it's a, it's a problem that rabbis always have. I just think the pandemic has really pushed it to the foreground mm-hmm. because of the overwhelming demands. Um, when is it okay for the rabbi to say to themselves firstly, before they even say it to the president of their shul or, you know, to anyone else, um, I, I also need some caretaking. I also need some time. I need to be paying attention to my own psychological and physical needs, you know? And I just want to go back to one small point that you made kind of in passing that I think it's relevant and highlights what's been going on, which is in the pandemic, rabbis certainly consulted with doctors but it's like they had to absorb 
epidemiological information that they needed to use to make decisions about what they could do in their congregations, right? That's just like one little itty bitty new responsibility that they had, right? Um, taking in all kinds of scientific information from their medical consultants. That's typically not a rabbi's job, right? So you mentioned that in passing, but I'm, I'm emphasizing it because I think there were so many permutations of new and different responsibilities, understanding the impact of the pandemic medically, um, uh, the technology, um, thinking about people in who were their support staff that they don't always have to be thinking about, as you just named. So all of that coheres and coalesces and contributes, I think, to the, the really deep burnout that, that many uh, clergy are experiencing right now. And they need to be able to say, um, yes, I, I'm entitled to take care of myself because it is the oxygen mask, right? If they don't pause, if we don't let them pause, they need to pause and we need to let them pause. We need to find ways to tell them that we see them as human beings and that it's acceptable for them to pause um, and say that they have needs. Um, they're not going to be able to continue to take care of us. Like you just right. said, you're burned out from parenting, right? Because our kids don't say, oops, you know, mom, dad, I know you need a break. Um, I'm not going to make a demand on you right now. Hope, right. So in some ways, congreg congregations are kind of similar. It's not so different. Right. So uh, how do we get to that place? Like, where does it start? Does that mental health education start in rabbinic school? Like should rabbinic schools be implementing more mental health awareness into the training? Is that something the congregation needs to, you know, approach and, and, and confront? Where do you think the change starts and how, how do we work towards uh, less of this burnout? So the first uh, answer to your question is yes, absolutely. Rabbinical schools need to, um, you know, have robust pastoral education programs and um, all along the way teach the rabbinical students how they need to set boundaries appropriately with their communities, how they need to be mindful of their own vulnerabilities. Everyone, everyone comes with a unique family history, our own unique vulnerabilities, our tragedies, our losses, all of that interacts and intersects with how we take care of others. And so we all need to know our own trigger points. And one of the things, I there, there are really two things that I think are enormously helpful for rabbis to put into place whether it's in a pandemic or just in regular times, which is one, to have a support network of their own that's independent of their community, to have a group of trusted colleagues and peers that they can always turn to for support, for talking through problems, for talking through challenges, for getting new ideas, um, even to just fetch, you know, congregants fetch all the time to their rabbis. I think rabbis you need some trusted colleagues and peers that they can fetch to as well. That can be enormously cathartic. If you ask most rabbis, they would probably point out, regardless of the pandemic or not, that that is probably one of the biggest sources of burnout is that the people fetching to the rabbi. And it's not just that, it's at any point in time, right? It's you're always available. People don't stop to think, I'm just mm -hmm. at the grocery store, you know, picking up something for dinner. I'm not expecting a congregant to go and like unload me right in the like cereal aisle and 9 p.m. comes or 10 p.m. comes and you're about to like you're ready. And then an emergency shows up and nobody stops to say maybe the rabbi shouldn't right, you know, be bothered right now. And how emergency is it? And rabbis are always, always, always on. And that 
that you never really have that moment to exhale because you're always saying to yourself, you, you can go take a, a, a spa date, right? You can go get a massage and you're sitting there during the massage saying, who am I missing? Because I put my phone on do not disturb for an hour. And what emergency am I absolutely missing? Yes. Those are, those are all great examples. I spend a lot of time at Yeshivat Maharat teaching rabbis to think carefully about their boundaries and to be mindful about that conversation in the grocery store, right? You could say, wow, that sounds like you've, you've really had a hard week, or I'm very concerned to hear that, you know, you're sick or you've just been diagnosed. Let's set up a time to talk, right? And that time to talk does not have to be 10 o'clock at night. So there's an ongoing triage. And I really encourage people to think about the subtle and not so subtle messages that they convey to congregants. So I'll give you a perfect example of that. You do get that email at 10 p.m. at night, and maybe it's easier for you at that moment to respond at, at 11 p.m. because then you don't have to deal with it when you get up in the morning. But if it's at 11 p.m. or at 2 a.m. in the morning when you're reading those emails, hold back, right? Because if a congregant sees that you're up reading their email at 2 a.m. or at 11 p.m., that's not a good message, right? Yeah. You can... You can wait until 8 a.m. unless it's a true emergency. And I think there's um, an education that rabbis can give their congregants, and you can even ask, how urgent is this feeling? Even asking that question, is this something that can wait? Is it okay if I call you tomorrow? Because today is a really packed day. Um, and maybe the congregant will say, no, it feels like an emergency. Is there some way you can find time to, to call me today? But even asking that question is signaling you know, that, that you don't always have to immediately respond. So I think there are right. many, many ways that rabbis can learn how to set those boundaries. Yeah, this is actually really relatable, relatable to me. Um, I'm an actor and it's very different because I'm not caring for the well-being of an entire community, but there's never really like an off button. You're always, you always need to be reachable. My agent could call me even on a weekend. Sometimes um, if I turn my phone off, I feel really worried. I'm going to miss something important. Um, and it's something that I really had to work on. And that's why I was thinking about, you know, is it something rabbinical schools could teach? Because in my theater training, I feel like that was one giant gap in our education was they didn't talk about the burnout that you experience when you're constantly auditioning, constantly stressed about making money, constantly worrying about when the next job is going to come. And so you're always like on. And I took a mentorship program a bunch of years ago where the mentor said he at a certain time of night does not check his email because the minute that he does that, it opens up this vortex and it allows people to feel like they could reach him at any time. And so now I'm a little bit more lenient. I will sometimes answer at night, but I am conscious of it. And I know that I can set the boundaries when I need to. I, I can, I can, I can relate. Right. Even yeah. doctors and therapists, you know, on our voicemails, we have, if this is an emergency, call 911 or go to your nearest emergency room. And rabbis don't have that on their voicemail, right? Yeah. If this is an emergency, mm -hmm. call me. So um, I think there's, in addition to rabbinic education, I think there is a way to educate your communities and congregants. When, when is it an emergency? When do you have to call the rabbi immediately? And when can it wait? And I, I think there is a way that you can have that conversation with the community. Mm -hmm. Avi, have you found any little personal tricks that you, you've used or that your wife yeah, has used? It's, it's very easy. It's get out of the pulpit. <laughs> 
Oh no. <laughs> okay, no! I don't want to hear that. No, 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 no. That's well, hard. actually, well, what happened? The reason why one of the major reasons why I'm not in the pulpit, um, aside from the fact that there are not a ton of pulpit positions, is that we actually tried it for a year. Um, my wife and I, we started realizing that uh, rabbinic ordination is like a genetic disease. It's okay if you're a carrier; you're just not supposed to marry another one. <laughs> Right. Uh, and, and having two people in a pulpit um, for that one year was really, really difficult, just in terms of logistics. It was that we both had to go to different synagogues. We were both, you know, had to deal with child care, with who's going to be where, what, when, where, why, uh, what would happen when, you know, you have a, an emergency that's, you know, for each of you roughly at the same time and your kids are just like stuck and you have to find somebody to take care of them at the last minute. And what would happen if you you can't say no to a funeral, but what happens if both of you have a funeral that are is at the same time and it's right around, you know, like uh, on a Sunday when your kids are home and this was at a time when our kids were not old enough to take care of themselves or be home alone or whatnot. Um, and it was just too difficult and too, it asked too much. And I was like, you know what? Um, I don't think that this is a great idea right now. And I don't think that we should be doing this. So that's where we separated it. So um, because it was it was burnout happening right away on a weekly basis, um, I, I think it's it's finding a time. To me, one of the biggest tips that rabbis the that handle it well seem to be doing is finding that day, right? Because you you know rabbis don't have that weekend to take off because that is the on day. Um, yeah, then during so the week, but then during the week, they don't have that time. So they have to find that time to take that day off. Right. In Chicago, my wife had Wednesdays. She used to call herself a Wednesday Adventist. Um, you know, that was the day that like she would shut off her phone. She wouldn't be reachable. Of course, there was another clergy member. So that's the other thing that communities can do is to recognize that one clergy member cannot really take care of, a, you know, an entire congregation, especially with a large congregation. Um, but rabbis need to take that day off and really protect that day and to know that that is my, you know, that's my Shabbat. It's a Tuesday or it's a Wednesday or whatever it might be, a midweek, and you don't go to services. Um, you, you know, you, you daven alone at home or you go to a different congregation if you want to be part of a minion uh, where you're not on. And mm -hmm. that becomes your day and you have to have, because if, you, if you're on seven days because Shabbat is a work day, you don't get that time. You don't get that rest. And that's huge. And that really is unique to rabbis. Yeah. I actually want to expand on that a little bit because I feel like Shabbat for me recently has been something that I've reintegrated back into my life and has been really helpful in balancing out my mental health. But then you bring up a really interesting point about rabbis not having that. Are there any other Jewish practices? And this can be a question for either of you, since you both have uh, a very well-developed background uh, with Judaism. Are there any other uh, practices that maybe existed that we don't use as much anymore or ones that aren't as talked about that can help find that that balance for mental health within Jewish tradition, if at all, maybe not. Well, I don't know about Jewish tradition specifically, although I do feel like therapy certainly started um, within, you know, the confines of um, Germany and Jewish uh, community with Freud. So I, I would say that considering if you're a rabbi in a community, be in therapy. Therapy is a neutral place where you do not have to care for your therapist. You can let your therapist take care of you. It's a place to process, it's a place to pause, it's a place to think and feel, it's a safe container. You don't have to worry about confidentiality or who might share, you know, when you have a friend in the community, even a really trusted friend, there is always that concern about how personal information might get diffused or, or um, communicated. 
but not in therapy. So um, I know that's not a Jewish ritual. No, I like that. I think Making it's Jewish, in Jewish therapy. No, that's yeah. awesome. I um, love it. You know, I, I really think all rabbis should be in therapy. Um, also, just in terms of your own personal growth, in terms of understanding, you know, almost every community, every congregation has that difficult con- congregant or two that um, someone who's very demanding and difficult, who you try your very, very best to take care of. And yet, for one reason or another, you never quite um, meet their needs. And so, um, you know, those, those kinds of, um, interactions are very depleting and therapy is, is always a very good place to try and unpack them and figure out, you know, how to navigate them better. So starting to wrap up here, um, you know, we already pointed out to a lot that congregants, one of the biggest things that congregants can do, um, to help you know, make their life, the, the lives of rabbis or lives of clergy in general easier um, is to ask themselves, you know, when should I be me- meeting the rabbi? Is this an emergency? What are the boundaries that I have? Because, because rabbis are these confidence that confidants that should be uh, open and available to their congregants for just about anything. Um, but knowing what the boundaries are and knowing when those boundaries are is important. What is one thing that you, you know, this is the month of Cheshvan. Rabbis love Cheshvan. There's nothing going on. Um, if a congregant wants to do something proactive and positive for their clergy member? What's something that they can do other than just, you know, buy them a spa gift certificate? Well, I I do think um, showing appreciation and letting the rabbi know how much their um, support and care has meant is, is always helpful because rabbis go into the field because they want to be connected to people. They want to care for people and they want the the work to be meaningful. So letting your rabbi know, writing a personal note, a phone call, I, I think that counts. Um, I think the other thing that if you ask surveys, I think we should survey our rabbis, maybe somebody could do a study, but I would imagine they would say increasing their compensation when, when they can, right? That is a concrete way you can show that you really appreciate all the hard, overwhelming work, relentless work that your rabbi has done. So I understand that not all communities can do that, but if there is a way to do that, I think that that's a particularly important way. And then the last thing is to just show an attitude of compassion towards your rabbi. In other words, if your rabbi misses a meeting or didn't call you when they said they would, or didn't acknowledge something that, you know, you felt, oh, you know, how come my rabbi is not here or calling me or where's the rabbi? You know, they're human and just being able to um, show some grace towards your rabbi, some compassion towards your rabbi, um, letting your rabbi make a mistake and, and, and that being okay, I think that also can very much help rabbis feel cared for and supported and seen as human beings. Thank you so much for that. Um, Dr. Esther Altman, a clinician in private practice in New York and the director of pastoral counseling at Jeevat Maharat. Thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, hope to see you again soon. Thank you for having me and for addressing this really important topic. Um, we have some business to attend to. Uh, we have a new email address and we have um, a theme that we're trying 
trying to go through for the month of November. And let's put those two things together. Um, November historically was always Jewish Book Month um, because it was the month before Hanukkah and the Jewish Book Council would uh, encourage uh, JCCs and libraries and uh, other places around North America to host Jewish book fairs and Jewish speakers uh, around their books and stuff like that so that people would have what to buy um, for Hanukkah gifts. Um, we are going to take the month of November and try to take our first segment and look at a different book every week. We would love to hear your recommendations, um, preferably uh, Canadian, but Jewish, new, uh, ideally, like something that hasn't been around yet. Maybe if it's an oldie, but really goodie, we can do it. Um, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, anything that's bound and is a book. Uh, we want to talk about it. And we want to hear your recommendations. Send us an email um, at bonjour at the cjn.ca that's b-o-n-j-o-u-r at the cjn.ca give us your book recommendations um we want to hear from you um and hopefully we will have a wonderful set of books we'll announce them in advance so that you guys can actually read them hopefully and have a chance to uh, reflect on them at the same time as we are um but that's about it um do you have are you are you alana you're already thinking about books to uh to read and to go over with us uh yeah i already have i already have some ideas but i won't say them because in case in case we don't pick them i don't want to disappoint exactly. anyone exactly maybe we'll put together a nice long book list of all the ones that we thought of and our guests thought of and our uh, listeners thought of and uh take it from there love it now's the time in our show for our nachas segment where we talk about something that's been giving us nachas that's newish jewish something um alana what's been giving you nachas the these days. This is newish and Jewish. It hasn't happened yet, but this weekend I'm very excited. A really close friend of mine is getting married and she's doing it at a summer camp. So we're all going to be sleeping in bunks at the camp. They're winterized cabins. Um, I was told to bring layers, so I think I need to go buy a pair of thicker tights today. Um, but it's going to be like being at camp and it's like we're spending the whole Shabbat there and they have like a whole itinerary and then the ceremony is, is after Shabbat ends on the Sunday. So I, ha I haven't been in a bunk uh, since I stopped going to camp, which was like 2010. So that is going to bring me a lot of nachas. Wow. Okay. Well, good luck and report back when, uh, how good that was. <laughs> if I if survive. <laughs> But I don't get eaten by a bear. What's your nachas? My nachas this week is uh, from the complete opposite of the uh, end of the spectrum uh, in terms of joy. Uh, we'll pull back a hair and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but uh, the month of Cheshvan and, you know, this month after all the holidays is a unique month in Canada because um, all the unveilings tend to happen, right? around now or around Passover, right? Because people want to um, have their unveilings before they run off to the, you know, away, run away for the winter or for the summer in, this, in, in the case, or before the ground gets too hard and it's not uh, conducive to be going to cemeteries in the dead of winter. So October into early November is really like high, high um, unveiling season for rabbis. And uh, unveilings are kind of this modern thing. I don't know if you've ever been to an oh. unveiling. You've been to an unveiling. You spoke about unveiling. Well, I've been to multiple in the last few months. There you go. Um, and I want to endorse and talk about nachas about unveilings because unveilings give us usually enough time to step back from the funeral itself. You don't feel in this tremendous moment of grief. Um, and there's a little bit more joy. It's talking about the person's life, a little bit of legacy, a little bit of f more fun memories. You get to chat in a little more social way afterwards. There's no like shiva to like run out to right away. Um, and I'm a fan of unveilings. And uh, I think that... 
not that we should be having more unveilings, um, but a lot of people have a hard time with the, uh, you know, the, yeah. it's not a Jewish concept. It doesn't come from Judaism. Um, I think unveilings uh, have their usefulness in that they really consolidate toward the end of it. It's not a Jewish thing? Where does it come from? The idea, I don't know. I mean, we have we, we refer to it in Hebrew now as hakamat matzeva. I, I don't think that like as a formal ceremony um, is not really something. Definitely the mm. idea of like taking the, you know, the, the white sheet that they use to cover the, the the stone and do all that. Yeah. Not whatever. I'm not going to get Where into it. Where does it come from? Because none of, none of my non-Jewish friends do unveiling. So I thought it was a Jewish thing. You know, it may, it may have some source. I, I can research it. I'm sure some graduate student has gone and done the, the, the appropriate research yeah. into the deep Jewishness of unveilings. It's not a, you know, deeply, it doesn't have a lot of ritual. It doesn't have anything specific attached to it. Um, I just think that there, it's, it's a great moment. It's like I said, you have that distance. You're able to have those memories. I'm a fan of unveilings um, for that reason. I also think, uh, just on like a personal note for me, a lot of the funerals that I went to in the past year had to be really, really small. And now that we're allowed to have more people, it actually kind of felt like it made up for the tininess of the funeral because the unveiling actually we had we got to have more family there. Mm -hmm. So people who yeah. couldn't come are now able to come. And I think that's really important. That has been a big uh, feature of uh, pandemic level un unveiling. Yeah. Stuff. Absolutely. All right. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, October 14th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Our technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts please do leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Ilana Zakon. 